Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Go check out Morbidly Beautiful for all your horror pop culture needs, from interviews to top 10 lists, reviews, and everything in between. They also have a great library of podcasts, which I suggest you go check out as well. And speaking of podcasts, I do have a new one coming out this Sunday featuring Stephanie, the editor-in-chief of Morbidly Beautiful. It's called Cheer and Loathing. I'm loathing, she's cheer. She loves pretty much every movie ever made. I kind of hate a lot of things people generally like. So we're going to discuss, debate, and talk about it all. This month we're featuring Nicolas Cage. Love him or hate him, he is a character. But that is all the housekeeping I have for you this week. All right. So, last week, we left on quite the cliffhanger, and I hope that you didn't Google the outcome, because that's straight-up cheating. If you did, that's your own fault, because yes, we are continuing our look into the supremely weird Richard Trenton Chase and his murderous escapades. So, let's just get into it. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. After going over all of Chase's issues and his severely messed up past, we stopped with him entering the home of Teresa Terry Wallen, a 22-year-old, three-month pregnant woman. Well, he didn't quite enter the home when he ran into her, but rather he opened the door to her home at the same time she was leaving to dig up the trash. Naturally, this spooked both of them, and even though it was probably his intention to kill her, the startling event caused him to fire two shots of his 22 caliber pistol at Terry. In pure reflex, she raised her arm, which Chase shot, causing the bullet to enter her palm, travel up her arm, out of her elbow, and eventually clipping her in the neck. The second shot hit her near the top of her head, presumably the killing blow. Once she was down, he fired a few more shots into her for good measure. He wasn't done though. No, killers like this are rarely satisfied with the quick kill such as this. Remember his first kill, the drive-by shooting of Mr. Griffin and how I speculated he was harder than quantum physics? Well, I think we know what the fate of poor Terry Wallen is going to be. Chase dragged her lifeless body to the bedroom and proceeded to do things to her. When she was found by her husband later that night, he was in for the shock of his life. Displayed in their bedroom on the bed was Terry, whose shirt was raised, exposing her breasts and her panties all but removed. She was left on display for all intents and purposes. That wasn't all he had done, though. No, he removed her left nipple with a knife. Her torso had been cut open below the sternum and her entrails pulled out, most notably her spleen and intestines. Whether those were the specific organs he was looking for, I don't know, but that's what happened. It's more likely he had cut her open and just started pulling things. Yeah, I told you he was a sick fuck. And oh, god yeah, that's not all. He also stabbed her in the torso, near the lung, liver, and diaphragm, and her left breast. 
He also decided to remove her kidneys and cut her pancreas in half, though he put the kidneys back for some reason. Of course, a scene like this would leave blood everywhere. Turns out that Chase, as discovered later, had smeared her blood all over himself, licking it off of his fingers. Remember the cat incident in the last episode where his mom walked in on him mutilating a cat and smearing its blood all over his face? Yeah, remember how she said nothing? Yeah, that sort of feels like a warm-up now, doesn't it? His mom, in my opinion, is just as much to blame for all his future murders. There, I said it, I don't care. She had the opportunity on countless occasions to report him or turn him in or do fucking something, but she didn't. And Teresa Wallen and others paid the price. Furthering the events of the Wallen residence, there was an empty yogurt container that Chase reportedly used to drink Terry's blood with, as well as rings on the floor where buckets were placed, again assuming they were used to gather blood. And maybe oddest of all, he shoved animal feces inside of her mouth. The couple had a German Shepherd, so I assume that's where he got it. I don't know why he did this, but he did. After he completely desecrated Teresa Wallen and ruined her husband's life, forever, he still felt the need to take the life of something, anything. Just a couple of days after the incident at the Wallens' house, a family had a dog give birth, and it was time to sell off the puppies to a good home. A man with, quote, stringy hair driving a ranchero bought two from them. One was later found mutilated not far from the Wallens' house. Obviously, at this point and rate of killing anything he could get his hands on, Chase was escalating. He was turning his fantasies into reality and quickly. Killers like Chase don't stop until stopped. There isn't any rhyme or reason to it. It's not planned out and it's not meticulous. It's just complete and utter chaos, which makes his urges unpredictable. The fact that he was moving so quickly from kill to kill usually means he'll make a mistake sooner rather than later but there would still be some time before he was caught. As on January 27th, 1978, again just about two weeks after he killed Teresa Wallen, he would strike again. Evelyn Marath was a 38-year-old mom of six-year-old Jason, an aunt to a one-year-old little boy named David as well. The same little boy she happened to be babysitting on January 27th. She wasn't alone that night with the baby as her friend Dan Meredith had come to hang with her. At some point during the night, Eve had sent her son over to a friend's house so she didn't have her hands full, that night I suppose. However, her son didn't show, and so the friend sent their daughter to check up on him. She knocked at Evelyn's door, or the house she was babysitting at, but nobody answered, despite someone being inside. She reported this back to her parents. Growing concern began to spring up in the neighbors as it had only been a couple of weeks since Teresa Wallen, who lived in the same neighborhood, well, within a mile. Is that the same neighborhood? How big's a mile? I'm Canadian, so miles mean nothing to me. Regardless, it was close. Too close. And so, concern soon turned to worry, and worry into action. A neighbor finally entered the house, and it's safe to say they wish they didn't. Inside, they found a scene that no nightmare could match. Dan Meredith was in the hallway, laying in a pool of blood. That was indeed enough for the neighbor, and soon the police arrived at the place. He checked on Dan, who was dead by a gunshot wound to the head. The deputy continued his search for the place, which brought him to the bathroom, where he found a tub full of bloodied water, but no body. And so he continued on, trudging through the house, 
gun surely drawn until he got to the bedroom. And that's where the nightmare truly started. Lying naked and dead on the bed was Evelyn Marath. Her legs splayed open like that of Teresa Wallen. Other similarities sprung up as well, such as the gunshot to the head and her abdomen had been cut open with her entrails pulled out. Two carving knives were also found close to the body. They were stained with blood. Okay, I have to warn you, things get really, really fucked up here. Like, really fucked up. So, trigger warnings, cause... Oh, fuck. Reports suggest that she was in the bath when Chase attacked. He killed Dan in the hallway, and most likely not knowing what gunshots sound like, she didn't think much of it, until Richard Trenton Chase appeared in the doorway. Again, it's presumed that he dragged her from the bath to her bedroom, where he proceeded to sodomize her, stabbing her through the anus into her uterus no less than six times. He made several slices across her neck and tried to cut out her eyeballs. Like the wall of murder scene, there were rings on the ground that appeared to be made by buckets as he attempted to gather her blood. He wasn't done with her yet, as he proceeded to stab her internal organs, again it's assumed to attempt to get at the blood within. Lastly, a large amount of semen was found in her rectum. Saddest of all, on the other side of the bed, police found the body of six-year-old Jason. He had been shot twice in the head at close range. Let's just hope he didn't have to witness what happened to his mom. But what about the baby, the one-year-old, little David, that Evelyn was babysitting? Well, as I said, this shit is sad. I won't go into details as it's highly, highly disturbing. But the baby did not make it through the night either. And what Chase did to him was vile, revolting, and truly, truly upsetting. They did eventually find his body, but more on that later. It's important to note that David, the baby, was not found at the scene. It is suggested again that the neighbor knocking at the door startled Chase, who then fled the scene with David before he could finish what he was doing. Chase left bloody footprints behind which were similar to the ones at the Wallens' house, and police even found a little 11-year-old girl describing seeing a man near the house where the recent murders had taken place. Her description matched that of a man who had been seen wandering the area recently asking for magazines. Missing from the most recent attack as well was Dan's red station wagon. It wasn't long until they found the station wagon in a parking lot, keys still in the ignition. Surely Chase wasn't far though. Of course, they didn't know it was Richard Chase at the time, I just thought I'd throw that out there. There's no point of me trying to maintain an air of mystery, uh, whodunit attitude when we all know who it was. But yeah, the station wagon. The police found it, and now the FBI knew that the perpetrator had to be close. What with the location of the car in relation to the crime scene, they just didn't realize how close. Chase had pretty much driven the fucking thing home, as less than 100 yards away sat his apartment complex where he was sitting while the FBI were searching the car. He could probably see them from his bedroom window for Christ's sake, that's if you were watching at all. He was probably a little too preoccupied at the time. FBI profilers Robert Ressler and Russ Vorpagel developed a pretty accurate profile of Chase, calling him a disorganized killer who had little regard for the consequences of his actions. It's likely he even walked around in broad daylight with blood on him or his clothes or both. They said he must live within walking distance of the crime scenes as he ended up taking a car from one, but not using one to get there. He may or may not own a car, but if he did, it would be as disheveled as his murder sites. His apartment or house would be the same, 
They also said he was most likely suffering from some form of psychosis. They went on to detail that he would be in his mid-twenties, white and thin, maybe even malnourished. They were certain that they would find evidence of his crimes at his living quarters. They predicted that the killer would also have a history of mental illness or drug use or both, which is pretty fucking spot on. Naturally, people in the area of the crimes were questioned, asking for anything that might help. Some had said they'd seen a man driving a red station wagon and police had a sketch drawn based on eyewitness accounts. That was until they came across a young woman called Nancy Holden, who had a strange run-in with Chase on the same day he'd killed Wallen. She was at a shopping center when she noticed a strange man acting all, well, strange. She tried to avoid any sort of contact with him, but her efforts were futile, as he directed a very peculiar question at her. Were you on the motorcycle when Kurt was killed? Apparently, this struck a nerve with Nancy, as she had in fact known and even dated a boy named Kurt, who died in a motorcycle accident. Maybe it was the shock of this supposed psychic knowing her past, but she asked him his name, to which he replied, Rick Chase. The guy wasn't so psychic after all. Apparently, she went to high school with him. Yeah, remember the stud Rick Chase who had an endless line of girls wanting to be with him? but he couldn't get little Richard up? Yeah, Nancy had gone to school with him, though he was nothing like the man that she knew back then. She described a young Chase as studious and clean cut, not this mess wandering around a shopping center looking like an absolute menace. The pair talked for a while, but naturally Chase made her uncomfortable, so she took the first moment she could to bail. Chase was paying for something when Nancy scurried away but Chase couldn't take a hint, obviously, and followed her into the parking lot, asking her over and over again for a ride. She didn't acknowledge him, got into her car, locked the doors, and drove off, probably saving her life. She did feel it was rude, but you know what? Good. This is a big cliche, and the girls over at Crime Junkies say this all the time. Be motherfucking rude. Do it. If somebody is making you uncomfortable, be a cunt and get the fuck out of Dodge. When I was in my 20s, I had something kind of similar happen. No, it wasn't a serial killer that I'd know of, but I was in a plaza parking lot about to get into my car when I heard a voice behind me. Didn't know who it was, and he was polite enough. He told me he'd just gotten off of work but left his wallet on the bus and had no cash. He needed to catch the next train to get home. He asked if I had 20 bucks I could spare so he could get a ticket for the train. I said I didn't. He said there's a drive through ATM just at the other end of the parking lot, which was actually fairly deserted. And he said he'd just hop into the car with me while I take out some cash for him. And he even motioned to the passenger side door. I said no, which seemed to actually shock and confuse him. That wasn't going to happen. I said I'd drive over and get it myself, but he can walk over and meet me there. Now call me a sucker for actually giving this guy 20 bucks, but I figured that I did the right thing on the off chance he actually needed it though I was rude to him. Who the fuck knows what he could have pulled when I got to the ATM, or even when he was in the car with me. No, I wasn't a 20-year-old 100-pound girl. I was a 125-pound 25-year-old. Still small. Still an easy target. It's not only women who are targeted for these things. So, no matter who you are, as I said, be a cunt if you think you're in danger. It very well may have saved Nancy Holden's life. But, back on topic. Her description of Chase, with what he was wearing and his overall appearance, did mean that this was most likely the man they were looking for. 
Also, the police got the ballistics reports on the bullets he had used, and they were traced back to a gun bought by one Richard Chase. And he had bought ammo for it on January 10th. Seems kind of like the final nail in the coffin, if you ask me. Though, if that wasn't enough, one of Chase's neighbors, Don Larson, had said she recalled her weird-ass neighbor in her apartment on Watt Avenue. She said she had caught glimpses inside his apartment and noticed that he had a large map of Sacramento on his wall dotted with black ink. She didn't know what it meant, but it was weird. She had never reported him for fear of making an enemy out of him. Pretty smart, since the police probably would have shown up, saw a corpse in the corner, body parts everywhere, and then said something like, Well, everything's good here, just uh, keep it down or whatever. Because as we all know, when police come across a serial killer before they're wanted, they suddenly turn into the dumbest people on the planet. I'm sorry to any police officers who might be listening. After some digging, police did actually find out more about Chase's past. His drug abuse, his mental history, his past arrests, and figured this was their guy. They spoke with the landlord of the building and learned that his mom paid the rent, and that he had also refused to let her in the apartment, probably because of all the body parts. But hey, what's she gonna do? <laughs> Report him? <laughs> oh, yeah, I cracked myself up. Once the detectives got his address, just one day after the what was then a triple murder knocked on his door, he did not answer. And so rather than busting down the door, guns ablaze, they waited. They still hoped that little David was alive. And I assumed the risk of bursting in might cause a hostage situation or something worse. So they waited. They pretended to leave, assuming he wasn't home. But really, they just hung out in the parking lot of his building and waited for him. He eventually came out holding a box. Flashes of seven spring to mind, and the coppers eventually apprehended him, though there was a massive struggle. But the police came out in the end. After a search of his person, they found Dan Meredith's wallet in his back pocket. He was also wearing an orange parka, the one witnesses had seen, covered in a dark stain. His shoes also appeared to be soaked in blood. Beyond that, he also had a pair of latex gloves on him. The box was oddly interesting, though it wasn't super important at the time. It contained blood-stained rags and paper. That's it. They took him to the station knowing full well what he'd done, just trying to coax a confession. He refused, but admitted to killing animals, but not people. In fact, he was rather stubborn about even talking about the murders. Naturally, while in custody, they searched his apartment, which again was something out of a nightmare. That's an ongoing theme with this guy. Nearly everything in the apartment was covered in blood or stained in blood, including food and drinking glasses. The kitchen was bad. Yeah, real bad. They found little bones in the sink and body parts in the fridge. Man, cops nowadays must have to draw straws to see who's going to open the fridge of a serial killer. It's never a pretty sight. There was one container that held human brain tissue, and a nearby blender was stained completely red and smelled to high heaven. Furthermore, they found plenty of pet collars, but no pets. Other bits of disturbing shit that they found were anatomy textbooks and newspaper ads for pet sales. One of the most chilling things that they found was a calendar. The calendar in and of itself wasn't anything special, but the fact that the word today was written on the dates that Wallen and the triple murders took place was. It was followed by 44 other dates with the same word written on it. 
As I said, he did not confess, despite all the evidence against him, making life that much harder for law enforcement to do their jobs. And he wasn't the only one. The court-appointed lawyer stopped any further questioning. Ultimately, the police wanted to know if the baby, little David, was alive. But Chase wasn't saying, so they went to his mom's place. Mother dearest, the cunt that she is, wasn't cooperative and said it didn't matter what they had found, Richard didn't do what they said he did. I hate this woman. Hate. Chase, though, was ultimately the catalyst of his own downfall. He, in a moment of brilliance, told an inmate that he drank the blood of his victims. What an idiot. Furthermore, the police eventually located a box in a church after a janitor had discovered it while cleaning. I think we all know what was inside the box. Little David. He was not alive. Inside the box, they also found a ring of keys that matched Dan Meredith's car. At this point, the lead prosecutor wanted the death penalty. Naturally. Richard Chase went through interviews with numerous psychiatrists, and none of them deemed him completely insane. Which is what his defense was. Not guilty by reason of insanity. One psych even said that he wasn't a paranoid schizo, but rather suffered from antisocial disorder. Despite his apparent need for blood, it was concluded that he never felt the urge or was never compelled to murder, and that he knew exactly what he was doing, and that it was wrong. The trial began on January 2nd, 1979, and Chase was charged with six counts of murder. The trial went on way longer than it rightly should have, and Chase even took the stand himself, which really couldn't have helped his cause. After five hours of deliberation and nearly five months of trial time, the jury found him guilty and that he should die by gas. Chase went on and did extensive interviews with the FBI, and the findings were so very interesting that I suggest you look them up. Too much to really go over here, but some of the finer points from those interviews include that he believed his blood was turning to dust because of dish soap. The first killing was somewhat accidental as he was angry his mom didn't allow him over for Christmas, so he fired his gun from his car in frustration. It just happened to hit somebody. Not sure how much of that I believe. He also claimed to be Jewish, which he was not, and that Nazis were hunting him down. They weren't. All because he had a Star of David on his forehead. He certainly did not. He said that Nazis were also communicating with aliens and UFOs telepathically. Yeah. On December 26th, 1980, a guard was doing his routine checks and came across Chase's cell. He called out, and Chase ignored him, which was pretty par for the course. But he was alive and breathing. However, on a return visit later that day, Chase was lying on his stomach on his bed, with his arms and legs dangling off. The guard rushed in and discovered that Chase was dead. Turns out he was hoarding his anti-depression pills, which he took all at once. He died of a toxic overdose. Upon doing an autopsy, his heart was examined, and it was found to be in perfectly normal shape and health. The very reason he killed, to preserve his blood and heart. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to leave a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called. Any five-star reviews will be read out on the show. Follow along on social as well on Twitter, at HorrorShotsProd is in production. Facebook at Horror Shots, or on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod. Thanks for listening.